Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who have great personalities. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's Wood Talk number 179 for April 21st, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about John's vice slippage, whether it's necessary to have both a router table and a shaper, Elliot's shop upgrade, tension wood, and Dave's hand plane technique. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. Whether you're sawing, routing, ripping down large sheets, or cutting a clean miter, you want definitive authority and control in your hands. See how to get it at FestoolUSA.com. I feel like I've got honey in my voice tonight, gentlemen. You know, it does. Mm, it's very smooth very and sweet smooth. and subtle, supple. <laughs> I don't know I about all that. Subtle. <laughs> uh, I, I like subtle and supple as well. All right. Well, just real quick, we should mention our uh, donors, Robert D., Gerard D., and Marsha B. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to support the show, you could do that too. Go to woodtalkshow.com, look in the left-hand column, and you'll see some links there for, uh, you know, $1, $2 donations. We don't really ask for a lot. Every little bit counts, and we certainly appreciate it. So thank you, everyone who's donated in the past, everyone who will donate in the future. It really helps a lot. All right, you guys want to jump right into what's on the bench? I think we should. Uh, yeah, we could do okay, that. Okay, why not? Sure, what the heck? Why break with tradition? <laughs> it's, it's, it's on here. It's it's written down. We may as well. Oh, my gosh, the enthusiasm <laughs> just coming right out of our voices tonight. <laughs> no, totally. We're so into it. All right, well, you know what? Still no woodworking for me. Lots of planning. It's that, that whole calm before the storm of the next project. And I've been doing a lot of planning for the Morris chair which is now officially available for purchase. So if anyone really wants to dig into the building of a Morris chair, we're going to do that starting on May 2nd. And you can go to the woodwhispererguild.com and look for the, the link to the Morris chair there. You could buy into it. Or if you get a yearly subscription to the guild, you get that project as part of that subscription. So it's a good time to join. And aside from that, I've been prepping for a weekend with wood which I am getting super excited about. And the, oh my gosh, that's right. That's just around the corner for you. Now, are you, you're not going this year, are you, Matt? They asked me not to return. <laughs> they said, you know, 
uh, based on your uh, experience last year. We, and- we had a lot of complaints from merchants from that <laughs> long walk that you had to do from the uh, the other end of the street. And on top yeah. of it, you didn't use more than one of your beer tickets and uh, you're not coming back. <laughs> you're not welcome here. Uh, well, it, it promises to be a great event. It's not quite as large as, as like woodworking in America, but seems to be a very tight knit group of people. And I'm super stoked about the, the whole experience. So I'm doing a little talk on oil-based finishes and simple varnish finish and just kind of quick methods to getting good good quality results using oil-based finishes and a lot of background. And I think that's important with oil-based finishes <laughs> because it's a, a wide variety of things. You pick up one can and you think you know how to apply it and then suddenly the finish is not drying. It's not curing properly. And why is that? So that's kind of what the the my session is going to be about. So anyone who's going there, I look forward to meeting you. Don't be uh, Don't be a stranger. Come up and say hi. Nice. Make sure you bring a lot of butterscotch because that's about the demographics that you'll be running into. But more importantly, actually, <laughs> I'm really curious <laughs> as as a as a presenter. Sorry, I'd love Matt, to get do, you, do I need a <laughs> do I need a pocket full of sugar free candies? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. How about I, a bowl of ribbon candy? All just set it right out on front of it. Make sure that they know that that's the candy <laughs> and this over here is the oil. I think you just offended about like three quarters <laughs> oh of our God. audience. Uh, based on the reaction last year, there's only about maybe one percent percent of them will know who you are okay that's good then that's good i need i need to get into a new audience <laughs> no but seriously i i really would love to hear your perspective as a instructor and, and how the classes went i just thought it were they were really neat because they're so so small and it's really yeah. just such an opportunity to get one-on-one like you within one session you could know everybody's name their background and every little quirk about their wood shop which i guess as an instructor maybe that's helpful for you because then you can really nail the the message home for them well it's really helpful because you can go you can go around the room and say uh, how about everybody just introduce themselves first say where you're from and then by the time it's done i've killed an hour and <laughs> i don't have to have a long presentation sounds great to me yeah, in that case, write that down. <laughs> that's going to be your itinerary. There you go. All right, Shannon, what's up with you? Um, I have uh, I'm I'm applying finish to a project. What? I know. Whoa, I know. dirty lies. <laughs> now is this I'm one actually... you did like three years ago? <laughs> no, that's the other surprising thing. Is is a project I finished in the last month. Wow, so it hasn't been sitting around. It doesn't have that nice patina already on it. <laughs> um, Look at you. I, I finished the shaker pedestal table, the Hancock shaker table. And um, decided to try something totally different. So I'm using that Masterpiece wood finish, that three-part oil and wax deal that uh, Charles Brock came out with. Yes. And uh, I'm digging it. I'm digging it. It is um, It is not for the impatient. I'll say that much. Mm-hmm. Um, Des- I mean, describe it, the steps. I know it's like a three-part system, but I, I don't know yeah, the details. There's, the, well, the first part is it's, it's basically all three parts are, are a mix of oil and wax. And the first part being much, 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 much more oil with a little bit of wax. Second part is a little bit more wax. So the, the first part is really to add that depth and add that luster. Second part is to kind of fill the pores. So there's a little bit more build to it. And then the third part is basically just wax. It's a top coat that you'll end up buffing to the level of shine that you're looking for. Okay. So it's, it's really totally idiot proof. I mean, you rub the stuff on, you don't even have to use a rag, just put on gloves and rub it in. And, you know, give it some time to soak in and then come and wipe the stuff off like 20 minutes later. You apply two coats of the first one, um, one to two of the second one, depending upon what kind of wood you're using and how much filling, you know, to, to level the surface you really want. And then just that final top coat. But you are really should be waiting like 24 hours between coats because it is oil. 
Right. Um, yeah. And uh, it's just, it's like you go in and I decided to do it because obviously oil and wax doesn't really offer much in the way of protection. It's totally that close to the wood finish, sure. really lots of depth and luster. And I'm using this really beautiful piece of air dried walnut for the thing. The column is, is, has a little bit of figure, a little bit of curl in the column itself. So it's just, it looks gorgeous, but um, you know, it's a small little side table. It's not like we're going to be really doing anything other than maybe setting a vase of flowers on it or something. But um, <laughs> I'm just so glad that it's a small project because <laughs> it, I don't think I'd have the, the, the patience to, to mm-hmm. wipe down every single surface and then come back 20 minutes later. But the irony is, is I finish for 30 minutes and then go away for like a day and a half <laughs> and come yeah. back, finish for 30 minutes, go away for a day and a half. Cause just, just the way it is, you know, I mean, you, you finish in the morning and like I did it on the, on the weekend. I didn't get to it until, you know, the end of the next day or whatever. So it's like a full 30, 36 hours have gone by between coats and um, in, in five days it'll be done. It'll be done finishing. Um, yeah. maybe even longer than that because I'm not gonna be able to get to it tonight um, I did several test boards just because, uh, well, you know, call me crazy. I didn't want to try out a new finish on this project. I just sunk a bunch of hours into what that's blasphemy. I know, I know. So you're not a gambling man safe. is what you're saying. I'm a coward. What can I say? <laughs> so I, I did it on the test boards and I saw, wow, this is really easy. This is cool. I can't wait to do this. So I'm on the mid coat right now. I'm going to be, uh, maybe I probably won't be able to tonight, but I'd be applying the second, second application of the mid coat. Mm-hmm. tonight or tomorrow or something like that. So I should be done in another week. You know, you'll have to let us know how it holds up because those oil wax finishes, uh, I'm always on the fence about them. Like they look beautiful right. initially, but I don't feel like they hold up as well. And not even talking about durability. I'm just talking about the luster of the surface kind of dies right. down and needs to be, you know, hit again with the same stuff. So I'd be very curious just over the course of the next year, you know, maybe you keep us updated on what that finish actually looks like. Yeah, and and that was really, I mean, I was really on the fence whether or not I wanted to go this route. Yeah. Basically, I wanted to to try and to show something different. You know, I've finished a bunch of projects and hand tool school projects, and I feel like it's either shellac or it's just like armor seal rubbed on, you know? Mm-hmm, sure. It's my simple varnish finish, basically. And it's like, they work, so why mess with it? It's like, you know what? I've done a little bit of dive, done a little bit of this. What else can I do differently? And other than like break out the Erlex and spray a lacquer, which I just don't want to do on this project, <laughs> sure. I figured this will be something, you know, totally different. But the whole like maintenance aspect of oil and wax. I don't like that. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see if in like a year I'm like, screw that. I'm putting down a shellac coat to seal it and throwing some, some poly over top of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But again, I mean, it's such a low use table to begin with. Um, it, it, it's, I can't even call it a side table cause you won't even really be putting, you know, anything, any drink glasses or anything on it. So we'll see. But, uh, yeah, definitely check back in a year and see how, see how it's doing. Sounds good. How about you, Matt? Well, I also am doing a little finishing right now. Actually, I'm doing a lot of finishing. And I have to tell you, when, when it comes to, and I know I think I mentioned this last week or the, or the previous week, when, when it comes to actually finishing properly, it, it's, it's hard work. That's hard work. <laughs> it takes a lot of effort. And I don't know how, how people really do this. It's just, it's insane. I actually, I believe I have a uh, finisher's elbow right now because <laughs> I've actually been, you know, sanding in between the coats and I'm building up, you know, and then, then kind of rubbing it out a little bit or just trying to get a really good smooth surface. I'm actually using different grits kind of going up. In fact, 
the headboard for Aiden's bed when I finished that not too long ago. He still kind of like reaches up there. He's like, it, it's silky smooth. You've never done that before. <laughs> I'm going to punch you right now. So anyway, so I'm, I'm finishing this bathroom cabinet that I'm making for our old neighbors. And I need to do the finishing process before I assemble the whole entire thing. And it's just it's at that point now where I have like one, maybe two more coats to put on and I'm done with it. And like I said, it, normally a, uh, a piece this size, I probably would p- apply the finish over like two or three days, call it good and be like, no, you want that textured feeling. That's that's all the rage these days. This one, like I said, I'm taking the time and I'm doing it, I guess, properly. Mm-hmm. And it's turning out amazing. But man, it's just I, I've never worked this hard at a finish. <laughs> You guys are wimps, man. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to finishing. Say, come talk to us when you're done with your Morris chair, getting in between all those slats and crap. Well, that's what an HVLP gun is for. What are you talking about? Well, I was just going to say, I'm like, you know, when, when Shannon mentioned breaking out the Erlex or something, uh, due to all the windfall that came down, you know, not money, unfortunately, but our tree and stuff, uh, I had a neighbor that there was, I just wanted to get the road open. So I pushed a whole bunch of branches over on his side of the street. And he really gave me some grief the other day. It was, it was rather subtle, but it was pretty obvious that he was pretty unhappy that I didn't drag it back across the street. So I was thinking, you know what? The wind's just right. If I break out that Erlex right now, <laughs> your front windows up. are toast. Perfect. <laughs> we can't get this residue off. What is this? Yeah, Try lacquer thinner. <laughs> uh, yeah, it must be. Uh, it's, it's the sap or something. It's coming early this year. Uh, dude, when I finished the blacker house chair, that would have been kind of a nightmare to do if I were doing maybe like a, an oil-based poly or something like that. Uh, and, and the only way to go with that for me was the HVLP. It was done within like a day and a half, uh, sprayed some lacquer, and I'm spraying outside. I don't have a, a spray booth. And you just kind of soak it, get it on there good. I spray, uh, sand a little bit in between coats. And then on the final coat, I just do a very, very dilute lacquer. It's mostly lacquer thinner, with just a little bit of lacquer as a final uh, coat to smooth everything out. Let it dry for a couple of weeks and then buff it after about you know one or two weeks. Usually about one is fine. And the surface is just absolutely perfect. And, and that's something that would have been really difficult to do with a hand-applied finish. So um, I joke around, but on the more complex stuff, it just is so – I mean, if you can get yourself one of those you know, budget-friendly uh, turbine units, something like an Erlex, it's totally worth it for projects like that. Right. Well, you yeah. know, it's funny. I was talking with another neighbor, and I said something about – you know, doing the finishing process. And I, he's like, well, don't you ever have one of those sprayers? You ever see those things? I'm like, I have one. I just have never even, I haven't even broken the seal on the box yet. That's how <laughs> intimidated I am by it. And I said, but I think this summer, that's how I'm going to keep the kids off the lawn. I'm just going to go out there and just spray the living daylights out of everything <laughs> and just practice. And it's going to be like, yeah, you roll your ball now, on my kids. grass. <laughs> grass is all dead. That's, and then you won't have to mow it at all. That's great. Exactly. That's awesome. And I See, won't even notice. When I, I have sprayed. I've sprayed shellac in my Erlex, mm-hmm. and I just I don't want to spray anything else. <laughs> yeah. I'm like so paranoid about cross contamination, and have I not cleaned it properly? And I've probably flushed the thing with alcohol enough times. Yeah. But I keep thinking, well, you know, I don't want to put put any anything else in there. I'm just gonna keep using it for shellac. So yeah, honestly, if you're if you're working with your evaporative finishes and things like shellac and lacquer, I wouldn't even worry about it too much. It's it's when you start getting into using it for your dyes and then also using it for oil based stuff uh, that, right. that you tend to have a little bit more problems in terms of like cross contamination. Uh, but I, I use the same cup and, and gun set up for shellac and lacquer. And I've got another one set up that's used for, uh, for my dyes. And this way I don't get any color contamination. I don't really spray oils, but if I did, 
I would, t- I would have a whole separate thing for just for the oils. I don't even want them going anywhere near my other finishes <laughs> if I can avoid it. Um, yeah. All right. Let's move on to uh, what's new. We've got some links to share with y'all. All right. Bring yeah. them on, brother. All right. Here we go. The first one is a link that I don't know if someone sent this to me via email. I didn't write it down, unfortunately. Uh, a Gizmodo link to five cat excavators playing the world's biggest game of Jenga. Did you guys see this? I- I think yes. you'd have to be my grandmother not to see this one. Yeah, this one made its, <laughs> yeah. made its rounds. Uh, very, very cool. They're just moving these giant, massive pieces of wood. And really, it's, it's obviously a commercial, but at the same time, it's such a waste of wood. Like, I, I really hope they do something <laughs> with those pieces when it's done <laughs> because there's so much lumber in each one of those Jenga pieces. It's ridiculous. What they need to do is to put on the, the large chainsaw attachment that they use for uh, – actually clearing out for us mm-hmm. and then it could be like one person holds it with the claw and then the other one comes in and they make some sort of statue out of it that would be a true test of excavator uh usage <laughs> right yeah it's it a lot like of fun. a cross like battle jenga like battle bots and jenga that could be fun yeah for sure definitely sweet well hey we have another uh link here actually we have several of them but this first one comes from larry and he says quote this is the best I think it's supposed to be an explanation, but I have expectation of bandsaw <laughs> blade tension I've ever heard and a scientific way to accurately set tension on a saw. This is the same guy with all the retractable casters for machines. I know we had a link for him not too long ago. So if you head on over to his YouTube channel, which, of course, we will have in here, uh, apparently you will get the best explanation of the bandsaw blade tensioning. Ever. Ever. Nice. Well, this uh, link is for music lovers. Uh, this is from the Trial and Error Woodworker blog. And the post is entitled, How to Tune a Hand Plane. And it is not what you think. Actually, <laughs> depends on where you're coming from. It literally is how to tune a hand plane. And he starts out with a pitch pipe and uh, tweaking the adjuster and tightening the blade. He actually changes the pitch of the body of the hand plane. And he plays a little song with his hand planes. It's just awesome. It's just very cool. Yeah, it's a nice short little song. It's uh, very creative. Well, if he can get together with Roy when Roy's using the distance saws, wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The next one we have here is from Jay. It's a cardboard coffee table that's cut on the CNC. And this is one of those sort of honeycomb cardboard structures. And they've got these big, and it looks like it's about like one inch thick pieces. And they just mill it out, make a bunch of pieces, stack them together, put a couple of uh, long bolts, like uh, all thread through them, put a little bit of, almost looks like an acrylic surface on the outside edge and bolt it all together. And it's actually a reasonable looking coffee table. But I have to say, I don't want to be there when the first person spills a drink on it. <laughs> think of the <laughs> right. same thing. <laughs> right? Because the top surface is exposed. You know, think about taking the top layer off of or taking, you know, a bunch of cross sections of a honeycomb cardboard structure. It's just little pockets all the way across and it's still cardboard material. So I don't know what you do about spills because it's just going to sit in these little wells. It'd be impossible to clean up. Um, but very neat. I wonder if you put that's that's when you use like grandma's plastic. You put plastic, <laughs> put plastic down table. on it. Exactly. Nice little tablecloth. Nice. Well, hey, we have one more here, and this is from Britt, and he says, The quality isn't great, but I found this video, and I liked some of the methodology slash ethos on Japanese woodworking. I just got back from visiting Japan and was struck by the woodwork I was able to see. Many of my photos were of the joinery in the temple and shrines. Very inspiring. Now, this is definitely, it looks like it's a much older video. I didn't have a chance to look to see what year I think this was released. This is It's got to be like mid-80s 
to look at it mid to late yeah. 80s. It almost it almost looks like somebody videoed it off of a really bad videotape on TV. <laughs> it is. I was listening <laughs> with headphones on and it's rough. It's it's tough to get through just because of the audio, but it, it's worth it. The payoff is some really cool woodworking, but it sounds like a bee or some sort of like flying insect in my ear <laughs> when I listen to it. It's like, I'm like oh yes. God, that's rough. <laughs> that's hard on the ears, uh, but definitely some cool woodworking there. Cool. All right. Let's move on to our poll of the week from our buddy, Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And he says, uh, well, it's a good question. This is, this is one that's near and dear to my heart. It's do you use woodworking scraps for things like smoking or, you know, cooking on the grill or in the kitchen? And, uh, do you guys ever do that? You take scraps in, use them on the grill or, um, I don't know, maybe make some, uh, alder plank or cedar plank salmon from shop stuff. I make s'mores and hot dogs <laughs> on a stick. Same here. Okay. Yeah, the fire that's pit. about the extent we've gone so far. But my father-in-law, definitely, when he found out that I think it was, oh my gosh, what did I have? It was some cherry or something like that. He's mm-hmm. like, if you ever just throw those in the fire without putting something over the top of it to let it so- cook into it, <laughs> a piece of I'm going to beat you. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, here's how the community answered. Uh, well, the question specifically was, have you ever used wood scraps for smoking? And uh, I was surprised. About 50% said, of course I do. That seemed, that seemed high to me, but that's very cool. Hmm. Uh, 32% said I never even thought about it. 10% say adamantly no way. And 8% say that they don't cook. So it's irrelevant huh. to them. <laughs> you know, I need to look into that because I honestly have never thought about it. And I don't even know like what I should do. Like, do you just drop it in the charcoal or what? Well, I mean, let's talk it about it, plank? Shannon. I will, uh, I will school you in the ways of smoking. Nice. For food, not, uh. I was going to say, I'm like, tobacco. oh, well, you know, 420 was just yesterday. <laughs> I know nothing about. <laughs> I know nothing about any of that. All uh, right, I think we can move into our kickback. We have a couple of them here. First one is from Bob Clark. He says about measuring blade tilt angle, which was a discussion we had in, I believe it was the last episode. A friend gave me one of those $30 Weixi digital angle measuring things. Works great for blade angles. Set it on the table, zero it, and then on the blade. Gives a precise measure of the angle and sounds like the other listener could have just moved it from one side of the table to the other to find the differences. So that's I, I've got one and I keep forgetting that I have it, so I never use it. Yeah, yeah. I had one. I loved it. Used it all the time because it, it just... You know, you try to set the angle off of the little gauge on the front is just futile. And then you take the square up there and I was like, well, do I have to line the square up with the with the carbide or I line it up with the plate? And right. I was like, ah, screw it. And you stuck the little magnet thing to the side and dial it in and it was good. Damn. I need to keep it by the table saw. I mean, I think that that's the, really the heart of my problem is it's over by the workbench. It's not <laughs> doing me a whole lot of good there. <laughs> Right, a yeah, magnetic right digital device on my workbench just isn't doing anything. It's weird. Oh, man. I drove myself insane <laughs> because I accidentally put mine on the bottom side of the uh, the fence rail. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find it for the longest time until one day I, like, I went down. <laughs> like, Why is this crank not working? Oh, hello, Wixie. <laughs> there you go. There you are. Oh, nice. Is that oh, how well, it's hey, pronounced? I, I said Wixie. Is it Wixie? Wixie, Wixie. Uh, well, you're in, in the southeast. I'm up in, in, in the Midwest. So uh, that would be the south, southwest, just to clarify. <laughs> oh, did I say southeast? You did. Okay. <laughs> it's okay, though. Well, you're, you're in the southeast portion of the southwest, right? Yeah, I guess. Maybe. Okay. You're, you're southeast <laughs> from L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. I am southeast from them. Well, sort of, that's what I was thinking. Sort of just straight east, really. Anyway, enough okay. geography. Yeah, it's starting to hurt my head. Well, let's move on to Jason's <laughs> kickback. And Jason says, a little kickback for your last episode when you were talking about what to do when you don't have access to your shop. My recommendation would be to try your hand at marquetry. For Christmas this past year, I built a set of marquetry saws for my wife and myself based on plans by John 
Here we go with a nice pronunciation. Eifler? Ifler? Sure. Okay. Eifler. Sure, why not? Uh, his website is over at uh, wood-veneers.com. Uh, he gave us a link for a YouTube video of some guy who did the same thing. And he says they're easy to build and surprisingly easy to use. You don't need much to get started with this style of marquetry, say painter's tape, scotch tape, white glue, rubber cement, tiny drill bit, tiny paintbrush, putty knife. You know, this list goes on for a while. Sure, you don't need a few things. <laughs> much. Well, the key is you can get it all for $15 at like a craft store. So. There you go, like a Michaels or something like that. Cool. And oh, anyway, so let me finish this up. I just realized there's something after the parenthesis. And it's, it's, it's great because it doesn't take up much space at all inside the house. And you won't get any noise complaints from the neighbors because it's so quiet until you accidentally cut yourself. And then there's a whole other issue. Yow! All right. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. We have got one more here. This actually is in the form of a voicemail, but it relates to our discussion about the rigid combo sander a couple episodes ago. Guys, another great show. I looked into the future and Matt is right. You guys are doing an awesome show today. Hey, wanted to let you know that I have that rigid reciprocal drum and belt sander combination. Uh, it is fantastic. When I bought this after looking for the uh, another one that was highly recommended, found this. It comes with a two inch, one and a half inch, one inch, three quarter inch, half inch, and a belt sander module. Has storage compartments built in for it. It has a dust collection built into it, and it has a collapsible table so you can get right up to the work surface if you need, or you can guide it. Uh, it is a fantastic unit. Uh, really thrilled that I found this and bought it, and I highly recommend the rigid unit. But if Matt's right, it's not available anymore, so go figure. In any case, another great product that I highly recommend. Great show, guys. Keep up the good work. Okay, so is this like this is like one of those back-to-the-future things that, that my brain just can't process properly? Listen to what he says at the beginning. Hey guys, another great show. I looked into the future, and Matt is right. You guys are doing an awesome show today. <laughs> I looked into the future. Matt is right. You're doing an awesome show today. Matt said something a couple shows ago. I think it was when we did a single topic show when we recorded it. And Matt <laughs> yeah. said something like, well, you'll be listening to this in the future or something. Something like that sticks in my head. So that's probably what he's referring to. But more importantly, I, I would I need to get that recording because I heard numerous times Matt was right. Now, I need that <laughs> true. For one for my wife and then two for my mother. You just need that as a so, ringtone on your phone. So the takeaway <laughs> from that is Matt is the future and he's right. That's correct. Mm. Mm, interesting. I think I need uh, Doc Brown to help me explain the alternative uh, uh, time Great thing that we went into. God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we got to transition right here into voicemail since we're on a roll with voicemail. Anyway, first question is from John about uh, some issues with his Veritas twin screw vice. Hey, guys. This is John from Sunny Phoenix again. Calling to ask you a question about the vice that I recently installed on my workbench. It's a Veritas twin screw vice. And uh, it's got solid maple jaws that I put on it. And the wood really isn't holding uh, as well as I want, particularly when I'm whacking out a mortise or something like that. It, it just tends to slip. I don't want to crank down too much on the wood. So I'm wondering what I could put on the jaws of the vise that will hold it, hold the wood in there a little bit better. Uh, I've heard of possibly leather um, or maybe like adhesive sandpaper or some other non-slip surface that wouldn't mar the surface of the wood. I was wondering what you guys would recommend and where I could find something that could fit uh, the really large jaws. My jaws are like uh, 30 inches long. It's pretty big. So anyway, I appreciate it and give the good work. See you. 
All right. Well, I know when I installed my Benchcrafted uh, hardware, they they came with some suede. It's mm-hmm. a very thin suede that I just attached with uh, rubber cement, and that worked great for me on my leg vise. Is is there like what other materials do you guys think would be good and cost effective for something like this? I definitely wouldn't do sandpaper because that's just going to end up like marring your wood a lot mm-hmm. more than you probably want it to. You'll never say you have something that is finish ready. You need to clamp it up. You're going to you know ding it up or mar the surface or whatever. Sure. Um, leather is what I've seen used on just about every bench I've ever worked on. Right. Um, now the key is if he's chopping mortises, nothing will hold the board while you're chopping on it. That's what I was it's thinking too. Slip. That's a very hard thing to do. Like you really want solid backing on that. So the bench top and find some other way to secure it. So you're actually, you know, getting some resistance to that hammering force. Now, I mean, right. it, it will slip a lot less if he puts leather on there. The, the key with, with, and it's suede specifically, is that it's got a little bit of flex to it, so it kind of molds to whatever you're clamping on it. But, yeah, I mean, it does not matter what vice you stick it in. It's going to shift when you chop out a mortise. Right. Cool. Bad. All right. Uh, what else we got? Oh, here? oh, and where you can get it, um, I've got it. Uh, go to, like, a fabric store, like a Joann's Fabrics, mm-hmm. and you can buy <clears throat> suede, like, on the bolt, so you can – depending on how much is left in the bolt, you should be able to pull off a yard of it and go from there. Now you'll end up with a heck of a lot more suede than you ever need, but still you can get them there. And And there's also nothing wrong with piecing together pieces, you know, just gluing them together. It's not like, yeah, if you have a seam, it's not going to be the end of the world there. Yeah. I know some people have gotten upset about like the ones from Benchcrafted where say there's a hole in it. Well, unfortunately sometimes cows have holes. (laughs) They do. Yes. Yes. And they have to cut around imperfections and stuff. So like you're saying, Shannon, you know, if you really need to, you can piece these together. Nobody's ever really going to see it except for the inside of that, that work piece or something. So, and never be afraid of having extra leather because you can always make some chaps. That's That's right. Which reminds me, I got to get some ready for, Oh wait, no, I'm not going there. (laughs) That time of year again. Mm. All right, got another question here from someone with no name about wood shapers. Hey, guys. I had a question about uh, a wood shaper. I just said that. I recently was able to pick up a uh, a Delta planer and a Delta wood shaper uh, for an insanely cheap amount of money. Uh, The shaper itself came with 68 separate cutter heads, which was, Mm. I thought, ridiculous. And uh, I'm working in a one-car garage, so I'm limited on space. And I also have a uh, a router table that I was using prior to getting the shaper. My question is, do I need to have both a router table and a shaper if I have a good assortment of cutter heads for the shaper? Are there things that the router can do that the shaper cannot? Um, Do I need to hold on to both machines, or can I make more space by getting rid of my router table? Um, That's about it. Love the show and insert any other generic, wonderful show comments here. Thanks. Bye. I'd like to insert. <laughs> I, I think we could all insert our own. I think Mark's awesome. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, Matt is right. Matt is right all the time, <laughs> and it's usually in the future. There you go. All right. Well, with the shaper, it's a heavy-duty tool, right? I mean, we've talked about this in the past. It's uh, no joke. Uh, it's, it's not quite like a router table. And a lot of times you're going to need a power feeder to be able to safely control the work pieces as they pass through. A lot of people do wonder though, why, why do we as woodworkers and, and small shop, uh, you know, hobbyist weekend woodworkers, why do we focus so much on router tables when we could just get a shaper and in many cases spend less money? 
And I think it comes down to versatility in a small space. I think most people are going to, in a small area, they're going to want a, a router table setup because you can remove that router and you could use it handheld for other things. So it's much more versatile in that sense. And a shaper, it's kind of like that next level tool. And unless you're doing a lot of raised panels or maybe you're doing a lot of um, uh, molding for a particular project, the shaper in a lot of cases may be overkill for your average woodworker. Uh, So in in his situation, to to answer the question directly, if you have that power feeder and if you can get a collet that will allow you to take your standard half-inch bits so you can have a whole range of of standard router bits to use on this thing, it probably will do just about everything you want it to do, except you're not going to be able to take that motor out and use it by hand if that's something you plan to do in the future. You know, so for me, I think taking up that real estate with a dedicated shaper in a small shop situation is a bit of a tough sell depending on what kind of work you do. For the average person, I think they might be actually better off with just a router table. Um, But, I mean, you get a good deal on one, how do you turn it down, right? So uh, in this case, I think if he gets all the right accessories for it, he probably could let go of the router table, but he's still going to want a handheld router uh, for various things in the shop, so... Yeah, the way I've always looked at it, and I was I was just I was just over. I had a, heard a conversation actually in another podcast, which I'm not going to mention because there's only a handful of the woodworking ones out there. But th- this type of question, once again, because we get this one all the time. I mean, how many times we've been doing this, and this question comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we all kind of change a little bit here. The, the shaper is definitely, as you mentioned, one of those tools that you can run like a whole bunch of molding through it. In fact, that's typically. What it's usually meant for is kind of a production shop where you are going to be just moving lots and lots of material through it. Uh, so quite honestly, personally, the shaper scares the bejesus out of me. It is <laughs> a monster size, you know, cutters on them. And let's get serious, the safety equipment on it. Like you said, if you can get the right equipment, the right accessories and stuff probably would be a little bit more approachable. Uh, but typically for the I, – I would never – with my type of woodworking that I do have, have a need for it. I think it's neat, but it would be one of those, even with a really good deal, I'd probably be going, um, I have a friend who could probably cash in on this deal. <laughs> well, you know what? Keep them both for a little while. Try it out. See if that shaper is all it's cracked up to be. See if the extra power is something you could really make use of. And if it offers that many benefits over your traditional router table setup, and that might give you a little more insight as to which one to keep around. I, I don't think you need both necessarily. Right. right. Uh, here's an idea. Go around to your neighbors, find out what kind of moldings they have, and then then start like mass producing those and then push around a little cart and be like moldings <laughs> get your moldings. fresh moldings here yeah that's like that that <laughs> magazine advertisement that's been in woodworking magazines for decades you know you make money by selling moldings yeah oh okay it's just that easy right yeah. good stuff <laughs> all right let's move into our emails uh, i got one here from elliot He says, I recently purchased a new house and I'm excited to upgrade from a single garage to a nice big 24 foot by 36 foot triple garage. I've always spent, it's good, right? Uh, I've always spent my quality time in the garage woodwork, yeah, woodworking. That's like ingrained ingrained into my brain every time I see the word woodworking. (laughs) See? Every time I see the word working. Well, that that makes sense when you see woodworking that you say woodworking. I see the word working. (laughs) It's called reading. And I want to say woodworking. All right. Anywho, he works on cars and some really basic DIY projects, but I'm pretty sure that I want to switch from mostly mechanicking to woodworking more seriously. My question is, would you guys recommend me going big from the start? 
I don't have an unlimited budget, but there's certainly room for a two to five horsepower dust collection system with ducting running all over the garage, a nice big table saw and a few other big tools like a planer, jointer, bandsaw, and some of the other common tools I see in shop pictures. The garage is brand new and unfinished on the inside, so it's basically a blank canvas. Would I kick myself down the road for not buying, uh, not buying the bigger, better tools right off the bat? Very interesting question. And I've, I've dealt with people and helped people out who've been on, on, on both sides of this equation of, I'm not going to name names, but there's a gentleman I've been working with. Who's a, a guild member who is fairly new to woodworking. Now the guy knows tools. He's got a really beautiful car shop and, um, he's now getting into woodworking and he's got the space. So he's done his research. He's looked around and obviously this is someone who's got a budget that can handle it. And he's looked around at uh, what's working for other people, made some decisions about what he thinks will work for him. And he is diving in headfirst. But I think this is a person who has a, probably has a history of doing this where he finds things he's interested in and knows he's going to be good at it and just needs the right tools to get the job done and has the budget to do it. So there's absolutely nothing wrong. If that's what your gut tells you you need to do and you do enough research, you can come up with a good shop that you're not going to have to replace things. And that might be a very satisfying thing to do so that you don't have to resell stuff down the line. The problem is I don't think that's realistic for most people. Most people really do need to to start off slow and with less expensive tools or used tools initially because you need to, you're not just answering the question of like what tool is right for me. You're answering the question of am I in this for the long haul? And you don't always know that right away. And that's where I would be hesitant to ever recommend someone jump in head first and get the biggest, baddest tools. Cause do you really know for sure where this is going yet? Uh, if you did, I think you would already know the answer to the question in terms of what to buy. The fact that you don't tells me that you actually may be better off toning things down a little bit, trying to get tools that, that may have a, a really good resale value so that if, and when you need to upgrade, you can do that. But I don't know in this case that I would advise uh, going right into it. Now, if you guys were in that same situation and take the hand tool, well, let's say Shannon, someone has the budget to go and get the top of the line hand tools across the board. I mean, it's a similar question then because those things aren't cheap either. Would either right. of you recommend jumping in head first and just getting everything that you need right off the bat? No, I would say I, absolutely not actually, especially on the hand tool route. Yeah. Just because there's a lot of people who jump into hand tools and go, this sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Where's my planer? Man? It's hard work. Um, but, you know, forgetting that, it's just, I don't know. I mean, there's so many distractions in in today's life that, you know, are, are you really certain that this is like your hobby for now on? Because what are we talking here? We're talking Tens of thousands of dollars to go to the level know. he's talking about with a two to five horsepower dust collector. And the, yeah. the way he mentioned it, he says that he, he doesn't have an unlimited budget, but the things he lists sounds like he certainly has <laughs> enough to make a wood shop. Right. We're, we're, we're <laughs> into five digits here pretty quickly <laughs> yeah, um, if, yeah. from what he's talking about. So I am, I'm always been of the mindset that pick a project and figure out what you need for that project. Hey, and I'm fine with going like really nice tools. If you decide I need a table saw and, and, a, and a joiner, get nice ones um, if, if your budget will permit it. But, you know, going out and, and buying a table saw and a bandsaw and a joiner and a planer and a shaper and a router table and all that stuff, it just seems, I, I don't know, it feels like you'd spend all your time just trying to get to know your tools and you wouldn't actually build anything. And then, you know, there's that that level of appreciation that comes from having done without and then adding something that makes it easier that I think is really key to your 
to your journey, if I can wax philosophical a little bit, the journey of a woodworker, you kind of have to suffer for a while before you can have all the good stuff. Well, there's definitely something to be said for discovering the need. You get to that point where you just go, well, crap, I can do this or I might find an alternative way, but there is a tool or a bit, uh, something that's designed to do this very thing. And now I need to make room in my budget to see if I can get this tool in place. Um, There's a huge lesson there. And if you don't have any of those, it's a, I can't say that I don't want to say that that's necessarily totally bad, but I think for most people there, there is value to be derived from discovering need as you go. Well, right. and there's working style as well. Um, and, and I could, I could be a really good example of that. You know, I started the, the power tool route just mm-hmm. like most of us. And, um, now granted, I, I never did buy a cabinet saw and I never did have a big joiner or a plane or anything like that. But, you know, I sold all that stuff and you better believe I took a loss. You know, of course I took a loss on some of that stuff. Um, I, I made good money when I resold a lot of my tools because they were in great shape and were well cared for. But there's no question, I didn't sell my Delta table saw for the $800 that I bought it for. Right. You know, I took, I think I took like a $300 loss on that. So I discovered that the way I like to work is is with hand tools. And if I had gone that route, man, there's no way you could not have buyer's remorse by going that that way and discovering I've got all these tools and I really like to work this way, yeah. you know? Yeah. What about you, Matt? You know, I, I definitely very much like kind of Shannon, you started talking about how like, you know, pick a project and go from there. That is one of the things that whenever the, this question comes up, I, I always kind of go that route. It's like, start kind of small. Yeah. Learn, learn what you like to do, learn what you, you, you necessarily don't enjoy doing. Just like any hobby, it is very tempting to jump in, but uh, not like every single hobby. There are plenty of them out there. One that this is a really stupid analogy maybe, but I don't know. Maybe this will help out a few people. It, it's kind of like stamp collecting. Sure, you can get a whole bunch of like really meaningless stamps or – I mean I remember years ago I used to go up to a, a hobby store and they'd have like this envelope full of just like – it looks like somebody just came in and was like, here's a whole bunch of stamps. Just put these in there and sell to some kid named Matt. And <laughs> But then there's like the really expensive ones and – you know, I don't know any stamp collector that went out there and bought like a ton of the most expensive ones and, and just kind of got started that way. Like I said, it's a weird, I don't know how I'm connecting those two. <laughs> I get <laughs> what you're saying. In my mind, it works. Somewhere in the future, somebody's going, yeah, that makes sense. No, no, no. I get what you're saying. In a lot of hobbies, and I've had a bunch of different hobbies over the years, it always, there's always the same thing. There are people who are totally budget conscious. They're doing a lot of DIY. They're just scraping by to get their tools to even do the most basic functionality. Uh, And then you have the middle of the road people, but then there's the people on the other end who have money to burn and they come into the hobby with the best gear and the, the top rated stuff. And they don't know anything more than the other people. It's just they had more money to buy the good stuff. And, yeah. and, and it's an interesting dynamic that always happens. There's, I don't think there's anything wrong with any one of those groups. It's just they are very distinct groups, and it seems to be common in all areas where people tend to throw uh, right. you know, extra income. Well, you know, I always think about when I was a mountain biker. This is a great example. Maybe this is the better example. Exactly I don't know that I other one. <laughs> I remember going like uh, to uh, the, these races, and actually there was this one that was a downhill thing. And I, I like to think I have a middle-of-the-road bike. It's not too expensive. It's got some nice gear. I've played around with it. I know what I like, and I got it the way I wanted it to work. There would be these guys. Like you said, they, they come in, and they've got the shiniest, fastest thing, the, the newest gear. And you would see them, and they wouldn't have a clue how to use that bike at all. And they would just be miserable on that trail. And then there's the <laughs> The guy that's riding mom's bike. They did an endo over their handlebars. Exactly. Yeah, but they always had the cool crash helmet.
helmet on that was fine, which almost <laughs> saved them. But then there would be the one guy wearing denim, probably sandals, riding mom's bike with the basket on the front, just like ding, ding, and just having a blast. And he's doing better than the rest of us. But it's because he's you know really passionate about it, but he, he knows what he can use and what he can't use. Yeah, and it's an interesting time too for for woodworkers and probably all these other areas of interest as well because there is so much information out there that technically someone can follow sort of on the sidelines what's going on in the world of woodworking. They could see what other people use, what those people produce with the tools that they use, and then come out from this going, well, I actually now have enough information to really design what I would consider my dream workshop. And if I had the budget then to apply to that and jump into it, assuming I know I'm going to stick with this hobby for a long time, it is a plausible thing that someone would be able to really just design um, their, their sort of end all be all shop as the very first thing, if the budget's there to, to pay for it. Right. Right. Absolutely. But I also have to think of like the fun that comes from acquiring new tools and getting it all done at once. Right. It's like, if you got it all at once, you know, (laughs) it's not as fun. Forgive the expression, but you've you've blown your load all. Whoa, whoa, easy, easy. <laughs> this is Alpha Geek Radio, buddy. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm I don't know what you guys are talking about, but uh, no, I got you. Go ahead. Yeah, it just seems like there's there's so much fun in that anticipation when you pull the trigger on that new tool, and you know you're waiting for it to ship, or you're waiting to yeah. go pick it up, or whatever. Then you bring it into the shop, and you drool over it for a while, and. You know, you you throw the manual away without reading it. I mean, that's part of it, you know? I don't know. It would be pretty damn fun to, to walk into a, a room that was empty yesterday and then you turn on the light and suddenly there's every woodworking tool you could possibly need and you the go, this is all mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could, I could deal with that. Uh, well, either way, I think there's a lot of different ways that you could take this, Elliot. Um, I think it's really one of those things. You got to do a gut check for yourself and decide what's right for you. I'd hate to see you buy something and then have to replace it fairly soon. But there's a lot of middle of the road tools that will last you for years before you get to the point where you think, or you you come to a point where you truly need to, to upgrade and get right. something better. So I, I do think dipping your toes in, going a little slower, getting confidence in what you want to do with the craft before you jump in and, and drop a whole bunch of money on this stuff. Yeah. And look at it this way. You could buy like the cheapest of cheap biscuit joiners, mm-hmm. drop it in the middle of the shop and you'd still have people who envy you because you've got a triple car garage. So <laughs> that's true. You're already, ahead of most of us and actually if anything if you did get the middle of the road ones or even me yeah let's go with the middle i don't want to tell anybody to get the lesser ones when you upgrade one of my favorite things is to have the person who's purchasing it off of craigslist or wherever you're selling it come in and then they're like well does it work you're like yeah it works great well what are you getting ready for because i bought that one and then they look (laughs) over there and then they hate you but then they pay for the one that you just sold (laughs) right Cool. All right. Hey, well, let's move on to Jamie's question. If you guys are all set here, do we do we give, give enough to Elliot there? You think we uh, probably too much? Him? Okay, good. I love giving too much information, which is exactly <laughs> what we're going to do for Jamie here. So if you guys want to take a break, I'll take over the show. For I the got emails to answer, so go ahead. Okay. Well, Jamie asked first of all. He said in episode number one seventy eight, Matt mentioned the tree that fell in his yard and street and had a lot of tension wood. Can you shed shed some light on this topic? How do you, how do you spot it? What causes it? Are certain species more susceptible than others? I'm assuming if a board is bound up with tension as soon as it is ripped, it has a tendency to potato chip on you. Well, yes, Jamie, the uh, kind of all of the above. So first of all, let me clarify exactly what I was speaking about when I mentioned tension wood. And I'm going to use a reference here. Uh, I got a great book years ago. In fact, I want to say once again, dang you, Schwartz. I know he mentioned this book. Uh, it's by Sam Sherrill. It's Harvesting Urban Timber, A Complete Guide. And in chapter two, 
uh, from Trees to Log. He has a, a great entire section in here, and it's about three or four paragraphs, on reaction wood, which is another word for tension wood, or you might even be familiar with the term compression wood. In fact, uh, Sam goes on to mention here that uh, tension wood is usually the term that is given to the phenomenon I'm going to describe here in hardwoods, compression uh, wood is the phenomenon described for softwoods, and uh, I can't remember what the third one is. But anyway, so it, it, it's in there. Think of it this way. Now, when a tree grows at an angle, such as maybe on this, on a hillside, the pith of that tree and the pith, of course, at the very center is it's not going to be centered like a very straight tree. In fact, if you were to do a cross-section of the tree, you would notice that, according to Sam, the growth rings would actually be kind of oblong in shape rather than being uh, completely round around the, the, uh, the pith. And the problem is that off-center growth is what creates the reaction wood. So typically this is a, a trunk, again, of a tree that's maybe growing on the side of a hill or oftentimes it's the limb reacting to the forces that are pulling it down as it's growing upright. And so, therefore, that's why when I was referring to the tension wood, it's from the limb itself. Whenever I think of limbs, I immediately think firewood or a lathe for Shannon. That's also the, <laughs> the other one I always think about, too. Now, here's a really great example to help you kind of think about what it is. Now, he was describing how compression wood and softwoods is created on the underside of the leaning part of the trunk. So, for example, if the tree is on a slope and is leaning or curved downhill – then the compression wood will be on the downhill side of the trunk. And uh, uh, in a leaning or curved hardwood tree, tension wood occurs on the opposite side of the leaning angle. So Sam does this great ex- job of uh, giving us this uh, kind of an imagination. So put yourself in this position. If you are able to do this, let's do it right now. We're, we're going to get into a yoga stance. And you're going to stand with your arms above your head and your hands are clasped together. And then what you should do is, is kind of lean to the right. Now, Ow. Oh, yeah. Ow. Well, that's yeah. So don't do <laughs> that too much, wood. Shannon. We don't we don't have we don't have a good health plan here at, at Wood Talk. We need to work about on that one. Hmm. But anyway, so as you're doing this, lean to the right, and you can feel or pull the tension in the muscles on your left side. Now, on your right side, you can feel the skin and muscles kind of being squeezed or compressed. Yeah, so muscles. on that side, uh, skin and muscles exactly. That's uh, no fat yeah. at all. All of those yeah, muscles. It's, it's none of none of that barbecue <laughs> that I just had the other day on the over the whole entire weekend. Uh, very optimistic, uh, Matt. I know. Tell me about it. So uh, the compression wood, anyways, that part that's being squeezed, all that fat and muscle. <laughs> there you go. That's think of it as compression wood. And on the other side, where you're feeling that pulling sensation, that's the tension. So now imagine that. Uh, let's see here. Another thing. When it comes to the tension wood and the reaction wood or however you want to describe it, he says it, it can be very difficult to cut, dry, and finish. In fact, oftentimes the tension wood, as Jamie kind of asked there, uh, it's the type of thing that's going to be really bound up in the board. So when you cut it, more than likely – any of you guys ever have this happen to you? You're cutting, say, on a bandsaw or the table saw and suddenly there's like that spring action. Uh, it is scary. Yes. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, I had a I, I cut through a knot once, and it had it released that tension, and it bound the blade. It stopped it dead. You could hear the motor just still trying to spin, and that blade was going nowhere. Yeah, that can be a result of reaction wood, or maybe really poor drying at the uh, the lumber mill or something. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing he was mentioning is that with reaction wood, it can actually when we think of wood movement, we think it's going to c- contract and expand across the face. And in actuality, tension wood, reaction wood can uh, potentially even uh, shrink along the length of the wood. 
So that could really mess you up big time if you're thinking about it. And then the last thing is, oh, he was mentioning that it can shrink up to 10 times as much as normal wood. And uh, that would really mess you up again as if you don't have the boards completely dried or you're having any issues with it. And the last thing is that potentially reaction wood is not going to take the finishes or stains very well because the wood cells are so distorted. So some parts of them may actually absorb way more stain and finish than others and give you like the ultimate finishing nightmare. So in other words, avoid it. uh, Yes. Yeah. So how about the t-shirt idea, Matt? Tension wood mess you up. Mess you up. (laughs) (laughs) Doctors are working on it now. (laughs) I I think that the big key is because there's going to be, maybe there'll be some kickback. I don't know. But there is like branch wood and stuff like that. Um, There are uses for it, but only if you use it like as a whole. Beating small children. Carving and stuff like that. You know? Exactly. Um, If when we're talking about sawing into boards, it's bad right. because it's just not going to lay flat. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're using it to say, turn something on a lathe, even then you got to be careful. I have heard stories. I've never seen this, but of, of like branch wood actually like exploding on a lathe because you release the tension and it just kind of unravels while it's spinning on a lathe. But you know, you get the spoon carvers and kind of the green woodworking set. They use branch wood all the time. Right. So it's, well, I've heard it's not totally people- useless, but it's sometimes better to burn it. Yeah, I, I was reading someplace that actually a, a really good use, depending on what the species is, is sometimes branch wood is really great for, say, archery, especially in the situation of bow, because you want that that compression yeah. to be pulling back into place. So, yeah, it's definitely, and as you mentioned, it, it's it's kind of small things. Like, I mean, there's a lot of trees out there that basically they're, they're all branches. Let's get serious. There's not much in the trunk there. So, again, using it first maybe smaller things like small knobs or small whatever it is you're going to make. In that case, there's a very good chance it's very, very useful. But yeah, for, for full-on lumber, there's like the limb that came down in my yard easily is probably as big as many people's trunks for their, their regular tree. And it would be very tempting looking at it to say, oh, that makes some great lumber. But I just have a feeling it would just make a very long series of bowls. So there was nothing but junk in the trunk? Uh, no, the, the trunk was fine. The limb was pretty bad. Today's uh, <laughs> a day of bad jokes. All right. Yeah. yeah. So anyways. So Save we'll us, Shannon. <laughs> okay. So let's talk, to, uh, let's talk to Dave from New Jersey because he's from New Jersey. And according to a couple shows ago, all good things come from New Jersey. That's right. How you doing, Dave in New Jersey? <laughs> so Dave says, I've decided <laughs> to, to try my hand at hand planing. Recently, I finally begun to get good results on a finished surface, which was a joyous moment. Yeah, it was. But I noticed that the board I've been planing was no longer flat. Oh, I consciously made sure to make equal passes across the face of the board, but portions of the leading edge of the board and the trailing edges of the board had differing thicknesses. I feel that it must be something in my technique, maybe not enough pressure at times, possibly too much downward pressure at other times, but I'm not sure what the proper technique is in the first place. Can you please shed some light on the proper hand plane technique for ensuring that a flat surface is maintained. Do you think? Do you think Dave said uh, while he was in his shop, he's going, uh, "Is this me? Is this is this problem me? I, it must be me. I'm the only one here." All right, sorry. <laughs> that's that's what we're gonna go with. That's exactly the voice in my head. Now. <laughs> it's gotta be me. I'm the only one here. All right. I don't know. I keep hearing Tom Iovino in this situation. A little bit, yeah, but just a lot it's louder. Loud yeah. Crank it up a bit. Um, so let's see. Yes, there is a, there's quite a bit of technique. And I, and I think that's one of the things that we get caught up in. We've got these glorious planes we bought and you just kind of stick it there and you figure, hey, we're all good. But 
doesn't quite work that way. There is a balance and pressure transfer that happens. When you start out the cut, you've got a little bit more weight on the toe. And as you move into the cut, you transfer your weight slowly to the back of the plane. So kind of once the blade enters the wood, you can start to shift your weight back so that you're evenly between the tote, the back of the plane, and the knob at the front of the plane. By the end of the stroke, you should have all of your weight at the back of the plane. And that will work for the most part. I still find that people can sometimes create that taper, usually on the far side of the board, because uh, maybe they overextend their body and just naturally their weight is leaning forward. And if you put too much pressure on the toe of a plane, it is going to dig in deeper on one side over the other. And all it takes is a couple of passes to kind of get that pattern started because essentially you've created a, you've, you've changed the angle of the plane uh, of the wood, in other words. So the more passes you make, you end up maybe accentuating that slightly downward angle. So then you figure, oh, you recognize what you're doing. So you change it and you put more pressure on the front of the stroke. Now all of a sudden you've got this, you know, banana shape, <clears throat> Matt. Matt knows hmm. what they are. Oh, I know that one well. And, and then it just becomes this like incredibly frustrating experience because you're like, I'm supposed to be making a flat board and you keep switching pressure around. And, you know, a lot of times at that point, I will uh, just work across the grain and go diagonal and directly across the grain, flatten the whole thing out and start over again, because it can be really difficult to recover a board once you've started like altering that plane, once you've essentially created a giant bevel moving to one side or the other. Mm. The key that um, I hear a lot of people, I don't know who first started talking about this, but the whole kind of airplane idea, where as you come to the end of the stroke, you kind of lift off the plane like an airplane takes off. And you feel like, well, if I do that, I'm not going to take a cut all the way to the end. But in actuality, you're relieving the weight from the end of the stroke and you're making an even stroke throughout. So you kind of have to visualize the the hand plane kind of taking off at the end of each stroke. So you make sure you're removing that weight from it and kind of even going so far as to lift the plane up at the end of those strokes. I'm doing all these body motions and gesticulating right now. So just imagine. <laughs> I thought you were moving away from the microphone. Yeah, just imagine me sitting at my desk, <laughs> flailing my arms wildly. Um, the 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 the, the, blah, um, the the problem that people run into is they get that first stroke and they get so caught up in the prettiness of the shavings, and then they check it. They check the board like seven or eight strokes later, and they see that taper is there. The problem comes when they try to recover from it, and it just gets really really difficult. So that's why I said earlier, sometimes it's just best to kind of hit the reset button come back across the grain and flatten the thing out. Um, The only other thing I'll say is nine times out of 10, it's more pressure than not enough pressure. I don't know very many people who are not putting enough pressure on their plane because the weight of the plane itself should really be enough to make it cut. If the blade is sharp um, and actually uh, who is Paul Sellers, I think has a video out there where he like lassos the, the knob and just pulls the plane with a, with a piece of rope mm-hmm. across the board, you know, no, no, he's standing on the end of the board, just pulling it forward with a, with a rope and it pulls up a shaving. So there's no downward pressure at all on the plane. So where people really go wrong is by applying downward pressure on the plane. So that, that would be the one thing I would tell you is focus on putting no downward pressure at all and really just focus on pushing the plane forward and take a pass, check the board take another pass until you can feel confident that you've kind of got your technique down, I wouldn't go off on a bender and start, 
you know, 20, 30 passes because at that point you've already created that bevel and it's really hard to recover from. Okie doke. Good to know. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, you can support us. That's you can support us, Shannon. I Matt, can. Matt, you yeah. could, if you wanted to, you don't have well, to, it's optional for you. Okay, good. I'm, I'm it's really not optional for me. Apparently. No, it's required. It's it's rent for the space we only give you on the show. <laughs> uh, good, because my, my finisher's elbow is really acting up. I don't think I can hold you guys up any longer. All right. Well, the audience, if they want to, if they like what they've heard, if they uh, maybe they don't. I kind of screwed it up with some really terrible jokes today, but uh, <laughs> my apologies for that. You can support us if you want to. Uh, you could do a recurring donation. You can just go to woodtalkshow.com and look over on the side column there and you'll see some links for that. Uh, you can also pick up a Wood Talk t-shirt at twwstore.com. Those are really nice, high quality t-shirts and you could show your support that way, which is always appreciated. Or you could uh, just leave us an iTunes review. That takes no trouble other than if you don't like iTunes, you got to download it and go into iTunes, which sucks for some people. But if you can go through all that, you could leave us a review, uh, five stars, preferably if you could. And let's see, we've got quite a few here. Uh, Rad Dollar 2000, Strider 762, Nate's Woodworks. Hey, we know him. Cave Artist, Colorado Woodworker, Diesel Matt, and Jimmy Joe S., who had this to say. And by the way, I'm only reading Jimmy Joe's because he's got two first names, <laughs> which automatically means he wins. Although, for some reason, it sounds like Jimmy Johnson. It makes me hungry now. Well, that's Thanks, true. Jimmy Joe. Good subs. Uh, he says, for woodworking wannabes, listening to Marcus Hybridist, Shannon O'Throwback, and Matthew Van Toollust could give you a woody for the new hand plane or uh, a power jointer all in one show. This is the closest thing to woodworking porn you'll find on the internet. The combined knowledge, willingness to listen to each other's viewpoints, openness to getting both good and dumb questions, and confidence to get possibly scathing weekly kickback from listeners makes this both educational and entertaining. And he goes on. It's a, it's kind of a long review, but we appreciate that and everyone else's reviews. And I got to tell you, uh, we talked about some of these reviews before we recorded today, and it was uh, it was moving. I mean, we, we, get, we get a lot of crap sometimes with this show <laughs> because... You do the show, you say some stuff, crap comes out of your mouth. Half the time, you don't even know what you just said until you exactly. listen back to it, right? And you're like, why did I even say that? I, what yeah, is oftentimes, I don't know what I said until the kickback comes back, and then I go, did I really <laughs> did say I that? Did I actually say that? Okay, I did. I guess so. You know, so we get crap for it. We're not, you know, we're not professional broadcasters. We just kind of wing it most of the time. So we do get a lot of flack for, for things that we say, but... We also get a lot of praise, and we really appreciate it. And these reviews kind of – they made my day as I was reading them today. So thank you very much, everybody, who, uh, who they, left us They definitely brought a little a little tear to my eye too, but that's only because I heard Mark sobbing uncontrollably from the I happiness. Like, this is so beautiful. You guys are great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about it. Uh, Matt, if you want to give them the contact info, we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, do you have a comment, question, or a topic suggestion? You know what? There's several different ways you can contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. We promise we will not make a lot of fun, funny comments about you talking or your voice or your, your cadence or any of that good <laughs> stuff. Unless you have two first names. That's right. Yeah. And you can also email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And you can even leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from, say, today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And I want to remind people one more time that we come together once a week to do this show. But we also have our we have our own websites and our, our own shows and 
all that good stuff. So uh, you could find Mark over at thewoodwhisperer.com. You could find Shannon over at renaissancewoodworker.com. And you can find me over at mattsbasementworkshop.com. And of course, you know what? We even have forums at woodtalkonline.com where a lot of people say we ignore them, which isn't true because I just never listened to them in the first place. <laughs> I just subscribe to the help sections like that I'm obligated to uh, <laughs> to pay attention to. Uh, I do get in there once in a while, but I just don't have the time to, to peruse it. There's just too many posts to keep up with. So I'm, I've help. Been getting I need in to get a hold of Mark Spagnuolo, and I don't know how. <laughs> I'm usually four weeks late. I respond to stuff and then I look at the yeah. date and go, oh, geez, this is four weeks ago. No one wants to hear my answer now. So, yeah, yeah. it's all I'm good. always I'm always late. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. See you. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. 